now is when we start pulling out and reshuffling the order of these things because it is now blatantly plain we will never finish it. I, even I and all of my optimism have finally given up that hope. And I could have gone to bed a lot earlier last night, it's obvious. Exemplary character. Let me just touch this as touch this. That's amazing. Turn to Matthew, the fifth chapter. What does it mean to have exemplary character? What does it mean to, to have the character and conduct of Jesus Christ? Again, spiritual maturity is a very practical thing. It is not ethereal, it's not nebulous, it's not conceptual only. It is practical. It's God translating his principles into our practice. The kind of exemplary character that the Lordship is to bring me to, and those of you who have been a part of the last half of the session, I think it was in one of the earliest, maybe the first night or the next morning, that we talked pretty specifically about Lordship. We didn't talk at length. But we talked about Lordship, and so I've felt free to not go into, into that very much because I believe as you listen to the tape, you'll pick up some pieces in that, but it's an essential thing. Lordship is not, again, some token term that we place there. Lordship, literally, is essential. It is his absolute rulership in our lives. It's not something I give lip service to. It's something that I bow my life down to. And I submit. It's my will no longer taking precedence over his will. It's my want no longer superseding his wants. It's my purposes and goals and dreams and ambitions. No longer, not only are they not secondary to his, they, are, they should not even be in, in the running with his. It's his purpose and his goals and his dream and his pleasure, not what pleases me but what pleases him. That's lordship, and lordship is practical. Lordship is not difficult when you're standing in church and singing, He is Lord. Lordship is difficult when God says, Don't do that and you want to anyway. Lordship is difficult when he says, do that, and you don't want to. That's when lordship comes into play, and lordship must be actually a part of our lives. In Acts, the 11th chapter, it says that the and the, the, they were first called Christians at Antioch. Antioch was a unique city at that particular time. Antioch was one of the slave capitals. It was where the Roman Empire and all their conquests, that's where they processed their slaves. And from Antioch is where slaves were dispersed throughout all of the Roman Empire. And the ending of the word from which we come Christian, the ending, the suffix of the word literally meant belonging to. And it was the suffix that would have been a place in speaking of a bond slave, a doulos. Someone had been conquered and had no longer any rights of their own, any possessions of their own, in any time of their own, in anything of their own, any will of their own, any choices of their own. A slave did not even have a name of his own. It was, he was known as the slave of, and his master's name was the only name that he had. And so the, the, the people, the residents of Antioch, formed this word Christian, obviously not in the English, but in the Greek, formed that word Christian and it meant the slaves of Christ, belonging to Christ. And it was not a point of commendation. It was a point of derision. It was a point of mockery. It, it was putting down these believers, these followers of Jesus Christ. And the church at Antioch took that derisive term and redeemed it and made it to be really a commendation today that, that there is a great sense of honor that we are privileged to be, be called as those belonging to Christ. But Rome did not punish the early believers because they believed Jesus was God. You see, the Roman Empire was tremendously tolerant, as were the Greeks, because the Roman Empire was a, a nation and a religion of many gods. To add one more god didn't matter. The believers could claim that Jesus is God and the Roman Empire didn't get nervous at all. It was when the, believer, the believers were persecuted because they believed not that Jesus was God, but that Jesus was Lord. And that was the word kurios, which meant absolute monarch, 
absolute and final authority. And that's when Rome could not abide this religion. Because now Jesus being Lord meant that Caesar was not Lord in these believers' life. And now there was competition, there was a rivalry, and Rome began to persecute. We probably don't have a struggle in our world because we believe Jesus is God, but we have not begun to live as though Jesus is Lord. That means he is the final authority in the way we live, not our world system. He is the final authority in the way we live, not our church our denomination, our religious tradition. It means his will is first will in my life. Jesus is Lord. And that authority, and only when that kind of authority takes place, will bring about this exemplary character. And that exemplary character is in Matthew 5, and now I've gotten to where I'm trying to go. This is a very familiar passage. We're going to read the verse 3 through 12. It is called the Beatitudes. Now, this is not what the word means. Beatitude would come from our word beautiful. It is that which is pleasant, that which is good. And this is an oversimplistic way of talking about it. But the best way to understand the Beatitudes is to reverse that and say, these are the attitudes to be. And now don't go away saying that Alan Randolph said Beatitude means attitude to be. It doesn't mean that but that's the best way to understand them. This is not a good recommendation when he says, you know what, it would be so nice. His lordship says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after the right things, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake not truly because of your poor living and not falsely because of your ignorant way of living unwisely, but falsely for my sake you'll be blessed. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Now, I don't want to... We don't have another retreat to take with just these, but I want you to quickly see that every single one of those goes at cross-purpose to what our natural mindset would be and the world's way of looking at life. We do not say blessed are the poor in spirit. And that is lowly or humble, by the way. It's not talking about financially poor. It's talking about poor in spirit. Blessed is the man who recognizes his own individual bankruptcy and poverty of spiritual value apart from God. And the world approaches life exactly the opposite. Blessed is the man who is confident in himself. 27 rules to how you can win friends and influence people, how you can be a giant among men, how you can have a positive attitude in life, how you can be the man you were meant to be. Jesus says you are not able to stand in the stature of a man until you've learned how to kneel in the posture of a believer who is submitted to lordship. You have nothing to boast of until you recognize that you have nothing to boast of and then you have the kingdom of God which is your resource. It is only when I no longer brag and boast and am confident of what little bit I may have that I then tap into the unlimited abundance and resource and riches that God puts at my disposal. Long as I think I'm so clever, why should I need him? Long as I think I'm so capable, why should I take the time to find out what he wants? I know what I want and I can do it and get it. Do you know that natural strength is one of the greatest hindrances to spiritual vitality? because strength gives us a false sense of self-sufficiency. And you move nowhere in the kingdom of God until you realize that apart from Christ, you are not sufficient. 2 Corinthians, the third chapter, 
Verse 3, 4, and 5, such trust have we Godward. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who hath made us able ministers. It is not that Christians are incompetent. It is that Christians choose to live and work and minister through a competence that is beyond their own. That's why I believe that the, the Christian businessman with exemplary character can be the sterling example in a city of the kind of businessmen God would have and God would prosper and God would bless. Being poor in spirit, what does that mean for us? I want to simplify and make these more practical instead of the theological and religious terms. So would you just write these down? You can match them up, and if I'm not careful, I'll kind of sermonize about each of these, and I don't really want to do that. I want to give it to you and leave it with you. Poor in spirit means the man who has learned to give up his own reasons for pride. Exemplary character, the character of Jesus, is learning how to give up our reasons for pride and arrogance, to learn how to walk in humility, to learn how to not have a false. I don't know anything that's more despicable than false humility, by the way. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about true humility, that humility that's born of an honest appraisal of who we are apart from God and therefore who we are in the sight of God. And that is the most accurate appraisal of who you are you'll ever discover. Blessed are they which mourn. The world says blessed is the fellow who's always happy, who always is having a great time. And God does not say blessed is the man who goes around weepy. I don't know anything more despicable than weepiness. But don't ever confuse tearfulness with weepiness. So what's he talking about in this matter of mourning? How can mourning be an exemplary character? How is the world going to ever want to aspire to that kind of mournfulness in our life? Obviously, Jesus is talking about something far deeper than superficially we have presumed. And I want to suggest to you that this attitude of mournfulness is an attitude that is grieved over our sins and our shortcomings. An attitude that mourns over what God mourns over. An attitude that is broken by what God is broken by. When I was in college, uh, we used to sing the song, I haven't heard it for a long time, Let My Heart Be Broken by the Things That Break the Heart of God. That's the attitude. That's the exemplary character. Jesus' heart was only moved by that which moved the heart of God. His heart was never moved selfishly. His heart was never moved because people rejected him. His heart was never moved because people crucified him. His heart was moved and broken and his anger was stirred by that which stirred the heart and the emotions and the passions of God. So an attitude that grieves over what God grieves for, that gives up our sins and shortcomings. Meekness. Unfortunately, meekness in English sounds very similar to weakness, and we have confused the two. They are as different as daylight and dark. A weak man cannot be meek. This is not the definition. This is just extras. Meekness is strength under control. The word meek there would mean giving up our independence to submit to his lordship. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Who do you think God will trust with inheriting the earth? Only the ones who in that inheritance are going to exercise his rule to fulfill his purpose. God never is building independence in you. I want you to know spiritual maturity will not bring you to independence. We have made virtues out of things that in the kingdom of God are vices. Independence is not a strength within the kingdom of God. Independence is a fatal flaw. Individualism is not a virtue to be aspired to. Individualism is something to be crucified so they can be submitted to kurios, the absolute Lord. The Greeks used the word for meat was a word that would be used of training a horse. My son has a couple of horses, quarter horses. One of them is 15 and a half hands high. That thing to me, when I get up on him, he feels like a two-story horse to me. 
I, I'm not much of a cowboy, obviously. My son is pretty good, but not me. But when I sat on that horse and realized the powerful strength that that horse has, and you just touch the side of his neck with that rein, and he instantly turns. Does he turn because he has to? He could get rid of me so fast. He could say, hey, that isn't where I want to go. You go where I like. Meekness is not because we have no option. Meekness is because we make the choice to say, Lord, you know better than I know. Lord, you are wiser than I am wise. Lord, you have purposes that are higher than my purposes. And so, Lord, I choose to learn how to be submissive and responsive, and I learn how to be controlled. The key word for meekness is controlled. Giving up our independence in submission to his lordship. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's hungering for right. And the kingdom of God is a kingdom of righteousness. And righteousness should not frighten you. Righteousness is not in some great theological term. Righteousness simply understood is rightness. So Jesus is saying the character of the man, the exemplary character that God wants and the character that was to be found in Jesus. And if we want to take 30 minutes on each of these, we could pattern the incidents in Jesus' life in which he perfectly fulfills these measurements. He said, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Those are intense words. They're not just someone who has an appetite. There's someone who will die if he doesn't get a morsel of bread. There's someone who will die if their thirst isn't quenched. They're intense words in the Scripture, these particular words. And he said, and here's the, our practical application of this, the man who hungers for right things is the man who is willing to give up lesser appetites. Now, I don't get any big pats on the back, but for our break time, there was nothing more difficult for me to pass up than warm apple coffee cake, whatever you call that paraphernalia. But you see, I had to choose. If I ate that, then I'd have to skip lunch. And I decided I'd give up. Now, that didn't mean you weren't as noble because you didn't. Some of you who just ate it all. <laughs> Some of you had three napkins and holy... I, I, don't e I didn't even notice it. <laughs> I had to make a choice for me, and that was foregoing lesser appetites. The only way that I'm going to have a hunger for the right kind of character is if I'm willing to choose to lay down lesser character. If I'm willing to forego smaller pleasures for higher pleasure. These principles should be so easily understood to us because they're so plainly seen in the natural realm. We live by all of these in the natural realm. The athlete who has a desire for excellence has to say no to a lot of lesser pursuits because of a goal and a commitment he has that takes precedence over what he would like. He might like to sit and watch television, but instead he knows that he needs the discipline of practice. And so he says no to lesser pleasures in order to gain the higher goal. Jesus said, Blessed is the man who is of character, that he is able to distinguish between that which is trivial and that which is eternally consequential. You know what scares me? It scares me that I could possibly come to the end of my life and look back and it was occupied by unimportant things. It's too late to look back and regret. Now, I'm grateful that there is no situation in our life God cannot redeem for his purposes. So there's never a place where we can not bring Christ into it and his redemption, his miraculous creative alternatives. So you're never, you're never too old to come to that point of realization. But the tragedy for me would be to know that now and not live wisely in light of that and then have to look back and see that I had foolishly chosen the trivial when I could have held out for the consequential. Does anybody in here have an Amplified Bible? I asked that last night, and maybe somebody else is here that wasn't here last night. You have an Amplified Bible? 
could somebody give that to me for just a moment? There's a scripture in Philippians, the first chapter, that I have not found anything quite like the Amplified to, for that particular scripture. And I've got to read that. Philippians 1, verses 9, 10, and 11. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more and extend to its fullest development in knowledge and all keen insight. That is, that your love may display itself in greater depth of acquaintance and more comprehensive discernment. Verse 10 is the one particularly. So that you may surely learn to sense what is vital and approve and prize what is excellent and of real value recognizing the highest and the best and distinguishing the moral differences. The King James sums all of that up and says you may approve things that are excellent. That you may learn to sense what is vital. You know what a doctor looks for? Vital signs, without which you are no longer vital. You know what the Holy Spirit looks for? spiritual vital signs, without which you are no longer spiritually vital. And approve and prize what is excellent. God give us a standard of higher excellence in our lives. Forgive us for the haphazardness of our spiritual experiences. Forgive us for the pitiful poor offerings that we have brought to God of our life and our time and ourselves. Forgive us for the way we've cut corners and we've, we've taken shortcuts and, and we've bluffed our way through and we have been unprepared. God, forgive us. There's no excuse for that in the kingdom of God. You know what happens to a businessman who continually looks how to cut corners and how to shave, shave costs wrongly? and how to get by with less than was expected, and how to lower the standards and still get by and charge the top price. Ultimately, he destroys his own integrity, and ultimately, he forfeits his reputation in the community, and his business then is nothing. And the kingdom of God, I fear that we have not prized the things that are excellent. There are a lot of our music, there are a lot of our teaching. There's a lot of our serving. There's a lot of our ushering. There's a lot of our dressing. There's a lot of a lot about us. There's a lot of sloppiness in our speech. There's a lot of excusing and rationalizing our spiritual preparation. There's a, there's a lot of justifying our sloppy prayer habits that I think is a shame and disgrace when we bring it and we lay it before the king and say, here, I want to give it to you. I wonder if the heart of God, do we presume God doesn't know the difference between our shoddy workmanship and his excellent standards? God help us. God help us. Probably would. He says, I don't have to have you. Who has who required you to tread in my courts? He said, why do you bring the lame and the halt and the sick to me? He said, I, I'm sick and fed up with your new moons and Sabbaths. He said, I rather want from you the genuine offering of your best. Why is God so specific that the tithe is the first fruits? 10% is 10% if you take it off the top or take it off the bottom. But not in God's eyes, it's not. Why did God set aside one day out of the seven and say, that's my day uniquely? Truth is, they're all his days. You don't have a day. You have a day off from work. You don't have a day off from God. We have people running in at the last minute breathless into a service five minutes late down the aisle and sit down it takes them 45 minutes to capture their thoughts and then they wonder why God doesn't speak to them they're not growing I'll tell you why start preparing before you come into the presence of God we are careless about the presence of God God spoke to us as a church this is very personal area for me because God spoke to us as a church and God spoke to me as a person 
last January, 1979, started with us as a congregation with God very plainly, specifically, and powerfully, powerfully beginning to speak through us and to us about this matter of reaching for excellence. Not with the old reason to impress people. You know, before we want to have the best music program, we want to have the best staff, we want to have the prettiest buildings, we want to have the biggest place, we had the most prominent locations, and all for the wrong reasons. So we would be impressive. Now, that's not the reason we reach for excellence. We reach for excellence because that's the quality of what we want to give to him. So he's glorified. So he has the preeminence in all things. If a choir's just performing, for God's sake, shut up and sit down. But if you're offering something to Jesus, then offer it as worthy and befitting a king. president, no matter how you regard him, was coming to stay in your home overnight, I guarantee you, you wouldn't have dirty sheets on the bed. Then if a brother's coming, you make sure that you've got the best sheets on the bed as well. And approve and prize. That means to value. My wife had given me a, a gold bracelet for my birthday this summer. I don't buy that kind of thing, and so I really had no sense of its value. So a couple of weeks ago, I was ministering in Houston, and somehow during the night, it must have come off, and I didn't notice it till the next day when I'd gotten home and suddenly realized that that bracelet, and I said, well, no major thing. I've got insurance, and it, you know, what, $150? See, I didn't prize it. And I didn't take care of it because I didn't realize its worth. Try $500 on for size. I'll tell you what, if I had a do-over, I'll bet I'd be a lot more careful. Prize that which is excellent and of real value. God, change my value systems. Give me spiritual value. Recognizing the highest and the best, distinguishing the moral differences, that you may be untainted and pure and unerring and blameless, with hearts sincere, certain and unsullied. You may approach the day of Christ not stumbling nor causing others to stumble. You may abound in and be filled with the fruits of righteousness, of right standing with God and right doing. Righteousness is always right standing and right doing, right living, which come through Jesus Christ the anointed one to the honor and praise of God that his glory may be both manifested and recognized. Why are we longing for this excellence to be brought forth out of our life? Why? That his glory might be recognized and plainly manifested. That's what God is wanting to do. So blessed is the man that does hunger and thirst after righteousness, for he shall be filled. When I say no to lesser appetites, I'm not going to lose. When I am willing to let God set the standards of my life, I'm never going to have regret for that. I'm going to be so delighted. My life will be fulfilled when I am able to have that aspect of exemplary character of the man that gives up lesser appetites in order to gain. When we start out in our Christian life, most of the decisions are between good and bad. We are forever choosing. Oh, I'd kind of like to do that, but that's, that's bad. I, I'll do the right thing. I'll do the good. I want to tell you, as you move on in God and you walk on in the Spirit and maturity begins to develop in your life, you seldom have to choose between good and bad. Bad becomes so blatantly evident and so, so distasteful to you, it doesn't take that long to decide between one and the other in most situations in our life. But rather, we, we come into a new arena of choosing because the spiritual life is constantly a succession of, of reaffirming previous choices. We come into an arena in which we are now choosing not between good and bad. We are choosing between good and better and between better and best. There is a saying. It says, good is the worst enemy of best. You see, if you put be before me bad and best, there is no problem. When you put before me good and better and best, I have to have real spiritual discernment. 
and perception. I'm not always smart enough to know what is the difference between good and better and best. That's why I need a kurios. That's why I need lordship in my life. Because he does know what is best for my life and best for his kingdom. I have neat ideas that I think, I, I interpret. Lord, this would be such a fantastic idea. God, I could do so much for your purpose. And God says, Alan, that wouldn't even work. Here's the best thing to do in this situation. Oh, Lord, just give me a chance. You know what the struggle I have up here, and I'm not sure I'm always master it, is the difference between what I could share with you that's good, what I could share with you that is better, and what God once shared with you, which obviously will be best. That's a struggle we all have in our lives. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Let me make that practical by just saying that's giving up our right to get even. I have a right to that. I work for it. I have a right to that. After all I've done for him, he should have done that for me. I have a right now the way they've treated me. Why should I have to regard them? Yes, you do have a right. Jesus had a right to not die for you because you were a sinner. But he gave up his right. And he fulfilled his responsibility. The man who is merciful is the man who is willing to lay down his rights in order to fulfill his responsibilities. You see, we have had, again, as we have most things, we've had them backwards. Usually in our relationships, I protect my rights and I protect you fulfilling your responsibility. I give up my responsibilities or adjust them and I'm very quickly willing to adjust your rights. The reverse should be, I should give away my rights while desperately protecting yours. And I should live up to my responsibilities while being very forgiving whether or not you live up to yours. It takes all the hassle out of relationships. I don't any longer have to be the great arbitrator between who is before God, right or wrong. I just want to be right before him. And that means giving away my rights, yielding up our rights. I don't give them to anyone else. I give them to him. I can trust him with my rights because he will return them in the way that they will be, re they will be received by me as privileges, no longer rights. So now anything and everything God does for me and God does in me, God does with me, I count it as a privilege for I didn't deserve it. Blessed are the merciful. They are those who learn how to give up their rights, especially the right to get even. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Anything that disturbs the purity of your heart also dims your perception of God. Anything that you tolerate and indulge in your life that is less than pure, any mixture within your life will exactly affect your understanding and your comprehension and your revelation and therefore your, your relationship with God. God is not affected. He relates to you the same as always. God's love never changes. God's love is a steadfast love. God's covenant is an unbreakable covenant. But when I am not faithful in walking in that covenant, when I am not pure in my life before God, I am the one that shatters that relationship. I'm the one who draws back from being in touch with the life of God. God doesn't withhold his life from me. I withhold me from his life. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Purity in a practical sense is giving up anything and everything inconsistent with his purity if it is not to be found in the heart and life of God and Jesus, it has no place in yours. That's true in your thought life. That's true in your speech. That's true in your business. It's true in your marriage. That is true across the board in every conceivable area of your life. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Men who make peace are men who bear the family resemblance. They are identified as the children of God. Now notice he does not say blessed are the peace lovers. All of us would love to have peace, but few of us are willing to pay the personal price to be a peacemaker, and peace does not happen accidentally. It is created. Blessed are the peacemakers. The practical application of that is giving up unholy desires and jealousies that cause fightings. We could possibly use a little bit of that in our religions. Why in the world do we think we can bring peace in the world until we can't bring peace into the church? That starts in the local church. And that spreads throughout the church, throughout the city. And it embraces the church throughout the world. Peacemaker is a man who gives up unholy desires and jealousies and competition. competition is such a natural part of our life if we're not careful it gets carried over in our spiritual experiences some church's highest ambition is to compete and overcome to win over another church God help us that's like my left hand and right hand fighting with one another it just ends up that neither of them do what they're supposed to do the kingdom of God is not built by competition we have taken the world's mechanics and translated them into the church world and we've said if it works in the world and it works in business it'll work in the church it might but it won't work God's purpose it'll work the same kind of thing that it works in the world the world's ways always create the world's results and you cannot make them religious and give them spiritual trappings and expect that that somehow will change the character of what their reproduction is. The kingdom of God is not built by competition. It is not built by pitting one against the other and seeing who comes out the biggest or the strongest or the grandest or the greatest. The kingdom of God, the basic primary understanding of the kingdom of God is that it is a kingdom built by complement, not competition. The Baptists are not in competition with the, with the Methodists. The non-charismatics are not in competition with the charismatics. The Catholics are not in competition with the Protestants. God help us to see that we're complements one to another so that the beauty and the wholeness of Jesus Christ might be revealed, so the whole heart of God might be revealed. God does not have denominational fragments in his heart. Please know the spirit in which I say that. I grew up as the worst offender in those areas. And I'm not speaking of you, I'm speaking of me. And I want to tell you that doesn't serve the purpose of God. God's heart cannot be whole when his body is fragmented. The heart of God's got to be broken when he sees a body that's broken. And how can we be ministers of wholeness when we're not whole? And that isn't forgetting all of our labels. That isn't forgetting all of our distinctiveness. That isn't burning all of our buildings and building one big building. That isn't firing most of the pastors and having one great pastor. It's not any of those things. It's rather just simply laying down the jealousies and the pridefulness of the one-upsmanship of who is who and who is what and what the pecking order is. The kingdom of God doesn't have a pecking order. Jesus said, you want to be great in the kingdom? Fine. Take off your garments. Scourge yourself with a towel. Take a basin of water and start washing the feet of the disciples. Then you'll be great. 
And the church who is not serving the whole body of Christ as a humble servant is the church that is not serving God. In John, the 13th chapter, we see the picture. The disciples come in for the Last Supper, the most intimate moment of Jesus going to deal with these disciples. Luke tells us that there arose a strife among them as to who would be the greatest. Next time you're taking communion, you just stop and realize that the first time communion was begun, there was an argument in the midst of those who were taking communion as to who would be superior. If that doesn't shatter the sacredness and holiness of you taking the cup and breaking the bread, I don't know what will. At the door to that upper room where they came in for the Last Supper, and Jesus said, with great desire, I've desired to eat this Passover with you. Here Jesus was going to share his last words with these men. The anguish of what was before him, Jesus full well knew, knowing that the hour was accomplished, the Bible said. And they gathered in this upper room. They all came in, and every single one of them had to walk past the door, and traditionally in every Jewish home, in the, right beside the door would be the basin of water and the towel. You see, it was the expected responsibility of the humblest servant in the household to wash and refresh the feet of the guests as they entered. And so every disciple came in, looked down, and saw that there was a basin and water and a towel, but no servant, and marched right on past, unthinkable that they might be the servant. And we Lutheran do not bathe feet. Especially not if they're not Lutheran feet. <laughs> And the Baptists walk past? Especially not if they're not in the association. In fact, they don't even have to be something other than Baptists. Sometimes if they're not Southern Baptists or American Baptists or whatever other Baptists they are, independent Baptists. Every disciple walked past supper being finished Jesus arose from the table he left the place that was his the place of the Lord the place at the head of the table he left the place of prominence he left what he had a right to he had a right to turn to anybody in that room and say you go and bathe my feet and he left the place that was his he laid down the rights that were his and he walked over, laying aside his garments. Can I just suggest to you that the laying aside our garments is laying aside the differences that distinguish us and set us apart from anyone else? Jesus laid down that which distinguished him within that setting. And he girded himself with a towel. And he poured water into the basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet. There were a lot of years that he more frequently washed my feet than I washed his. I pray it will never again be true. There were a lot of years when I waited for other denominations to come to their senses before I finally came to mine. I trust that will never again be true. God help us, fellas. If we don't become servants of the kingdom of God, foot washers within the body of Christ. It's so beautiful when we read Philippians, the second chapter, who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant, humbled himself, became obedient even unto the death, unto the death of the cross. That's such a beautifully theological passage. I want to tell you, the next time you want to read that, read Philippians, the second chapter, and then read John, the 13th chapter, because Philippians 2 is Jesus before God, and John 13 is Jesus before the body. See, we don't have a problem when it's just us and God. 
humbling ourselves, taking on the form of a servant. But brother put us in a room with one another and the pecking order starts. Blessed are the peacemakers. Do you know what's in the heart of God? There's a lot in the heart of God, obviously. One thing you'll always find in the heart of God, it's his character, and that's to be at peace. Peace, in the Hebrew, is a beautiful word. One of my friends never see him, except he says, Shalom. It's the Hebrew word for peace. But the Hebrews, the Jewish people, had an understanding of peace that we don't. We think of peace as being the absence of problems. That's kind of a negative, a vacuum that says if there's no difficulty, then we've got peace. The Jewish word was the opposite. It was a positive word that said, was basically saying, may you have all the things that contribute to your peace, no matter what your circumstance. Blessed are the peacemakers. Those who give up unholy desires and jealousies that cause fightings, James the fourth chapter, from where come wars and fightings among you? Come they not from here, even of your lusts, your desires that war in your members? You lust and have not, you kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and war, but you have not because you ask not. Are you ask and receive not because you ask amiss, that you may consume it upon your own desires? The King James says lust. Don't let your sexual fantasies run wild when you see the word lust. It means any excessive desire in any area of life. Men lust for ambition and power and prestige and popularity as much as they lust for sexual pleasures. And blessed are you when you're persecuted, Jesus said. For righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, I want to make that very practical in saying the mature man is the man who gives up his inclinations to defend or to justify himself, trusting rather in the righteous judgment of God over his life. Now, these eight characteristics are the character of the mature man, the man who is moving in maturity. Not the man who's arrived. None of us have arrived. But the man who is moving in increasing maturity is a man who has learned how to give up his reasons for pride to become poor in spirit. A man who has learned how to grieve over his sins and shortcomings and the things that grieve the heart of God that he mourns. A man who has given up his independence to be submissive to the Lordship of Christ by coming under control in meekness. The man who is willing to say no to lesser appetites, to be released to hunger and desire the right appetites. The man who gives up his right to get even by choosing to rather express mercy, to give to others even what they do not deserve, and to not give them what they do deserve. The man who gives up anything and everything that's inconsistent with the purity of the heart of God and the nature of Jesus so that he can be pure in heart in order to have a clear revelation of God. The man who will give up his unholy desires and jealousies and rivalries and competitions that cause fightings and divisions and heresies and schism within the body and hurt and wound and suspicion and misunderstandings so that he can be a peacemaker bringing the wholeness of God into the situation. The man who gives up his inclination to defend himself, to justify himself, to make sure that he's understood and vindicated and rather is able to trust the righteousness of God that God ultimately will balance the scales. God will vindicate righteousness. There is your part and his part. Your part is an absolute, total commitment to these godly characteristics. His part is by the Holy Spirit to conform you to these Christ-like characteristics. Let's pray.
Holy Spirit. We need you. Father, I'm always freshly overwhelmed to see the beauty of your purpose for my life. I'm in awe at what great hopes and desires you have for me. Of myself, I would despair of ever being able to live up to those desires and expectations. Apart from you, I'd just give up now. But I'm encouraged to know that you have made an eternal commitment to my life. That eternal commitment is, as long as I will permit and allow you, you will keep on working. That as you have been the author, you will be the finisher of my faith. You are unchangeably committed to the work of your hands. And God, I know that the maturity of your, your children and your church, that's the work of your hands. That's what you're involved in. For as you have built and are building that church and reproducing that maturity, you're going to, in the most amazing fashion, release out of our life the most powerful, vibrant multiplication of witness that we've ever dreamed of. God, you've seen our hearts and how desperately we want to do your work. Forgive us that we have not understood that we can do your work no more than we experience your character. Rearrange the priority of my life till it becomes a priority of living to the glory of God, edifying the body of Christ in order that I might effectively present a positive witness of the life and love of Jesus to the unconverted. God, build in us the nature of Christ-likeness. Build into our churches and congregations the identifiable presence of God that what we speak will be validated by what we live. Father, thank you for these men. Thank you for this pastor. Thank you for this body of believers. I pray for every one of these men that you will stir within them that desire, that godly desire to have the purpose of God realized in their lives. In the name of Jesus we pray.